everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge, and welcome to our first installment of Top 10 Things, part one of three. Today is the top 10 things that can make your recording better. This is going to be a series of short shows that uh, I'm going to do essentially like I used to do the quick tips. Uh, This will be a series of quick shows talking about my top 10 things to make any recording better. Some of them being free, some of them being cheap, and a few of them actually costing money. So let's let's go for top 10 things that can make your engineering and recording better. All right, let's start with number 10. The number 10 thing on my list of the top 10 things to help your song or your project be engineered the best it can be is use the shortest cable lengths possible. So this is number 10 because obviously it's not the most important thing, but it does make a difference, especially in a studio setting when we're talking about mic cables and snakes and guitar cables and pedals and speaker cables and all these lines and and through patch bays and through interfaces and all these things they can really add up over time you might just look at it one time and realize okay if i'm recording guitar for example what's the longest you know how long is this chain well let's say you've got a 20 foot guitar cable and then you've got a 10 foot speaker cable okay so that's 30 then let's say you're running through a 30-foot snake into your other room. Okay, that's 60. Then let's say you're running to a patch bay. That's maybe another 5. Okay, add or let's do 6. That's a pretty common cable length for patch bay type stuff. So 6 feet. Then you're running into... Uh, let's just say you're going straight into your interfa- interface out of the patch bay. So let's say that's a short, like, jumper. So that's 67 feet of cable that you have on just one chain. And that's like a pretty low number for some places. I mean, some studios have hundreds of feet of cable for every line. And it can add up over time. And in fact, it's one reason why I think a lot of home studios can get such upfront sounds. Now, that's, of course, a catch-22 because a lot of home studios and project studios have trouble getting depth in their recordings but they don't really have trouble getting things that sound up close because they often mic things up close because of the room sound and whatnot. And they're using very, very short cables. So try as you may to use as short cables as possible. Mic cables, speaker cables, guitar cables, all of that. Um, You'll be amazed at a difference that it can make, especially added up over the course of 40 tracks, 48 tracks, 60 tracks, 100 tracks. You know... It all adds up because that contributes to noise, that contributes to interference and ground loop, you know, potential and all these things. So if you have just, you know, 5% better on 50 tracks, that really starts to add up. So number 10 is short cable lengths. Okay, number nine is good stands and shock mounts. This is something that often goes overlooked because people don't really think about the floor. And... So let's say you're on the second story of, uh, of a house or of a, of a building. You know, the floor is not a solid piece. It, it, it's on joists or it's on beams or it's someone else's ceiling. Um, and, and so that can really create a lot of issues with the floor vibrating. And even little bits of vibration can show up in the recording as rumble, as, you know, 
sort of confusing sounding almost like it, it just joins as a part of the sound and you don't really hear it. It just doesn't sound as good. Um, if you're recording in a basement or something like that with a concrete slab, you're probably in good shape. Why? Because the floor doesn't really resonate like, uh, you know, a second story would or even a first story home with a basement. Um, so just be very careful about the floor and notice how it's vibrating. You know, when you, when you, someone plays a kick drum or when someone is walking on the floor, can you feel the vibration easily? Um, and if so, you know, that may or may not be sort of hindering the sound that comes into the mic by vibrating the stand and it also may vibrate the drum set it might vibrate things in weird ways so uh, at the very least if you can't do anything about your floor um, make sure to get the best shock mounts that you can and I mean why not for every single mic that you have you know get shock mounts on eBay they've got them for basically any mic um, from you know as low as like 10 bucks 10 or 15 bucks to get shock mounts for basically any mic you can imagine, like a SM57 or an SM7 or an RE20 or 414 or large diaphragm mics of any kind, small diaphragm mics. There's lots of great options out there. eBay is probably the easiest way to find that type of thing. They have so many shock mounts on eBay, it's silly. Just search for the mic that you want to isolate and then type shock mount, and I'm sure you'll find something. Um, so that is number nine, using good stands that have a heavy base, something that won't vibrate super easily and won't fall over, and good shock mounts on those stands. All right, number eight is making sure that everything is tuned. Now, this might sound super obvious, but I'm talking about use a high-quality tuner for the guitars and the bass, and ideally use the same tuner. I have a Korg rack tuner that I love, and I use it on the guitars and the bass when I record. And some people would even tell you to, like I have this hooked up in this way, to set the tuner to actually come off of a headphone mix in your st setup so that, like, for example, on a guitar, you're actually tuning to the sound coming from the amp. You're not tuning the direct guitar, you're tuning the sound coming from the amp, like through the mic. After all, that is what you're going to hear. So, you know, that makes a difference. I highly recommend getting a strobe tuner or something that's very high quality, dedicated as a high quality studio tuner. Um, Peterson makes incredible tuners. Korg makes some great tuners. You know, there are plenty of plugins, I'm sure, out there that are very accurate tuners, but um, be cautious because... A lot of times, if something is a guitar tuner, it will tune differently than a chromatic tuner. And there's you can Google why that is. It would take me a little too long to explain. But long story short, sometimes if you tune with a chromatic tuner on guitar, it will sound slightly out of tune. Versus if you tune with a pedal tuner um, made for guitar only, it might sound better. And you can Google why that is. So number eight is perfect tuning, and this also includes drum heads, okay? Put in the hours, learn how to tune drums, because a lot of your clients, they might know how to tune drums, but a lot of them probably won't. And um, that takes a lot of time and practice, and it takes a lot of trial and error. So give put in the hours on that one. That will make the biggest difference on that. So that's number eight. Number seven is using analog compression and EQ on the way in. Now, this one obviously costs some money. And 
It's not something that you have to do. It's not something that is required. But in my opinion, on my top 10 list, it is very important. Um, and it's something that you, you know, I've collected over time. I've got quite a bit of analog EQs and analog compressors. And I think in so many ways, it helps the sound way better than any plugin can. But probably the biggest reason to use it is you know how it's going to sound when it gets recorded and you can make the changes while you're recording it and get the sound closer on the way in. That saves you time in the mix. That saves you headaches because you're sitting there saying, you know, like you might EQ something like a snare and be like, man, that sounds really bad. Like you might start boosting the top end and you start thinking, you know what? I think that snare just needs a new head. Like using analog EQ and compression can actually tell you things about the sound um, because it's sort of like giving your brain a pre-mix vision of what's going to what it's going to sound like. And it also allows you, like I said, to be more efficient and EQ and compress a snare drum, uh, even just subtly, you know, even just crack a little top end on the snare drum, maybe add a touch of bottom end, put a high pass filter on it, and then compress it a couple dB. And then you might not have to touch it in the mix. And that's great. And in the analog world, it's so quick to do that because it's with knobs and you just sit there and, and do it and you can listen to it while you're tweaking it and you can tweak multiple knobs at once. Whereas on a plugin, you're using a mouse, tweaking one setting at a time. On a you know on an analog piece, you can tweak two knobs at a time. And that is really, really helpful. It's not just about you know showing off and being like, I have these awesome pieces of gear. It really is a lot it's a sum of all parts really it sounds great way better than any plugin in my opinion and it helps you be efficient which is so so important so that is number seven using analog eq and compression on the way in number six is trial and error so this one is a little odd to explain of why it's so important but i'll explain it like this a good recording is not always the best recording a good recording is something that feels good and feels interesting and exciting and different and something that tweaks your ear and makes you listen, makes you drawn in to the mix and makes you drawn into the recording. So it's so important to experiment and obviously not waste time doing it. You know, you can't you can't just sit there and experiment for hours and hours and hours and never actually record anything like you need to actually record stuff. But don't just get stuck in the same routine of miking things the same way. If you remember the Brian Deck interview that we had, he said this statement that really is is so true and it, and it applies here so perfectly. He said, you know, when people are trying to get an interesting drum sound, but they mic it up like the standard, you know, two overheads, kick in, kick out, snare top, snare bottom, you know, why are they upset when it sounds like cliché? Well, because they used a cliche mic setup that's been used. So sometimes that is the proper mic setup. Like sometimes that's the sound. But other times you have to experiment to get something interesting and it will probably be out of your comfort zone. But make it an effort to when you're about to record something, really think about the things that you're about to do and think, man, what could I do that would be interesting on those drums? Like maybe I could try like three mics on the drums and just have the drummer play them really well. And I can almost guarantee you that any crazy idea you do can probably be done if the players are good. So you might be able to get away with one or two mic drums. And as long as the players are playing balanced, like if you listen to it and you're like, oh, no, there's too much cymbal, 
Don't just write it off and say, oh, I can't do that mic technique. Say, no, play the snare louder and the cymbals a little quieter and then see if that works, you know, like experiment and try to manipulate each little part, the player and the room and the mic situation and the pre's and the placement and all that to to be interesting and you know, try weird things. Try putting a guitar amp in the corner and miking it from the other side of the room. And try putting, you know, a guitar amp on the ground facing up and miking it from above. I mean, there are all kinds of crazy things you can try. So do it. That is definitely important. That's number six, trial and error. Number five is new strings, new heads. That is really, really critical on guitars and drums and bass, of course, because... To me, when I hear a recording that has really dull-sounding guitars, and there, there's a certain way you can hear it. The guitars sound dull, but they had to brighten them up in the mix, and it's not the same type of brightness. Same with drum heads. Adding top-end to a snare drum is not the same thing as using a snare, a brand-new snare head. That is something... That's one of those few things that you just cannot fix later. There's so many things that you can fix later now, you know, tuning and timing and all this, but you cannot fix uh, dull guitar strings or dull snare heads or dull drum heads in general. Um, you, you just cannot fix that. You can try, but you're just EQing more of the same dull and trying to like get this phony brightness. That is not, that, that's not going to work the same way. So... Take the extra time if you only can afford one for the session. Like sometimes you can't afford to get new heads for the entire kit for every session. So if you can only get one, you know, get a snare head provided that the snare head on there is old. If it's not that old, then try it out. But a brand new snare head will make a big difference. And on guitar strings, I mean guitar strings, that's just like get the cheapest strings, like get regular old Ernie Balls or something like that. You're just going to replace them, you know, at the end of the day, if you want. And same with bass. Get just a regular set of bass strings. It doesn't have to be anything fancy, but replace those before you record. You can always take away that top end, but you can't really add it back. So that is a very important thing. That's one of those things, like I said, where you can you can take it away later, but you can't add it back later. It's not one of those things. It's something that literally does not exist in the recording. It's not like... You know, oh, I want more low end on this kick drum because there's low end, but there's not enough. It It's literally the equivalent of having a kick drum with like no low end, like just naturally, like you're using like a rack tom as a kick drum and you're trying to get this big low end out of it and it just won't happen. So on a guitar, on a bass or on a drum, I mean, new strings, new heads that that can make so much of a difference and it's cheap. Number four is finding the best room you can. So... There are certain things in a mix that can do just fine in a small bedroom-sized room, um, provided that it's treated. If the room is not treated, you might as well, you know, that bump that up to the first thing on your list of, of important things to buy for the studio is room treatment. I suggest checking out Acoustamac.com or G-I-K Acoustics. That's G-I-K, just the three letters. Um, also, Real Traps. Uh, avoid Oralex, and uh, I'm sorry, Oralex. I I don't mean to. If you ever hear this, or if someone listening is working for Oralex, I'm sorry, but I don't think your products work. Anyway, um, so treat your room, and there are certain things like uh, bass or guitar or vocal or you know percussion 
that can probably work just fine in a small room and a bedroom-sized room or even a bedroom. But there are a lot of things such as acoustic instruments like piano and guitar and violin and anything, you know, wooden like that with like a chamber type thing, like an acoustic guitar or a mandolin or a dobro or a violin or a piano, anything like or a drum kit, anything like that. Um, you need to get a room that sounds good because the acoustics of the room makes such a big difference on the sound, even the direct sound. And if you don't believe me, I mean, email me and we can debate about it and I will convince you because sound travels at 1,130 feet per second and um, that's really fast. So even in a large room, the sound that is being heard by the mic is a combination of everything in that room. It's moving that fast to where the difference between the reflected sound and the direct sound from the source is within, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 milliseconds, and your ear just hears that as one sound. That's actually a fact. Below, I think, 21 milliseconds or something like that, your ear cannot find the difference between two sounds. So if there are two sounds playing under 20 milliseconds apart, you can't hear so much that it's a separate sound. It almost just sounds like one sound. Um, Some people debate that that's 15 milliseconds, but... It's basically called the Haas effect, and it, your brain can't determine, you know, what's what, and the only thing that you can say, especially if it's a mono sound, if they're split in stereo, you know, if you have two things left and right and they're delayed 15 milliseconds, then the one that is uh, coming at you faster will sound louder, but anyway, um, my point is, The best room you can. Ideally, look for a room over 2,500 cubic feet. That's length times width times height. And for mixing and for tracking, ideally for tracking something a little bigger, like 4,000, 5,000 cubic feet would be great. Something like, you know, 25 by 20 with a 12-foot ceiling would be awesome. Um, High ceilings are really important. That helps a lot on drum sounds. And don't worry about the, you know, ambience don't worry about it. Like, embrace it. And if you need something really dry, then, you know, try to. You, you can record in a dry room or you can record in a big room and put baffles up. And you might think, well, is that not the same thing? It's not. It is not the same thing at all. A large room, it, it's so complex that it would take me forever to describe it. Go look up room modes and how they interact with the sound and go do your homework on acoustics and you'll see that The room is so important to the sound, it's just, I can't say it enough. So that's number four. Use the best rooms that you can. Number three is use the best quality instruments and amps that you can. So this is one step above, slightly above, the room itself. And this is very important. I have recorded, but but again, with a catch. I have recorded some instruments that are cheap instruments, like Squires or little cheap $100 electric guitars that in the hands of the right player can sound incredible. But be honest with yourself and know, okay, does this really sound good? Does it really sound like I'm hearing it in recordings? And there are instruments out there that when you sit down and play them, they sound so good, it's like you're listening to a recording. They exist out there. 
Whereas a lot of people, when they really listen, you know, if you if you play a recording over your speakers of an acoustic guitar, let's say, and then you try to play acoustic guitar, how similar do they sound? And try to ignore the fact that you're in a different room and you're playing in real life and not over a recording, but really just compare the sounds directly. And you might be pretty upset to know that your instrument might not sound how you thought. That might be good or bad, but... Um, Sometimes using the best instrument is, you know, really tough because people will bring their own and they want to use their own. And in that case, the best thing you can do is to refer to number eight and also number five, which is new strings, new heads and perfect tuning. So make sure that that's there. Make sure the guitars are intonated well and make sure that you can get your instruments to sound as good as possible. Again, new strings will help a lot with that. Even on cheaper instruments, new strings can make a, a cheap instrument sound a lot better, even if for a small amount of time. So as far as amps go and pedals, and just, just consider a recording to be like the best case scenario. So you want everything to sound its best. You want the guitar to sound its best. And also, in addition to using the best quality instruments that you can and amps, try to find the right one. So there are certain songs that a Stratocaster is not the right choice for the guitar sound. And there are certain songs where a Les Paul is not the right choice for the guitar sound. Think about those things and try to use the best quality you can. Rent it, beg, borrow, steal, you know, whatever you have to do to get the best quality instruments and amps that you can, do it. Number two is mic placement. So this is exceptionally important, as you all know, and uh, it's up here at the top of the list for a reason. Mic placement has such a big impact on the overall sound, and no, it's not going to be the difference between something that sounds you know, incredible and something that sounds like the worst you've ever recorded. However, it can make a pretty big difference between something sounding good and bad, and a big part of this is if your room is treated you can move the mic back and get more depth and life out of the instrument. If you're stuck micing things under 12 inches, you know, with an exception being guitar cabinets, which are usually mic'd close, even in nice rooms, um, you really should try to treat your room and experiment with moving things back. In, uh, in my studio, the closest I put anything, again, aside from guitar amps and close mic drums, just because of space is, you know, maybe 18 inches, maybe. And that's pretty close for me. And sometimes, you know, I don't go like 10 feet away on things necessarily, but um, unless it's a room mic. But again, if you have a good sounding room and you know what you're doing, you can get away with moving the mics in all kinds of cool places. But if you're in a crappy room, you'll probably have a hard time finding a good mic placement. Like you'll move it around and it'll sound like a little different. It doesn't really sound better. And... You know, one of the first things you should try is putting the mic where you think it should go and then move it back like a foot. And then try, and then from there, if there's too much room ambience or whatever, don't move the mic closer. Try to put up some blankets or, or buy acoustic treatment and see if that helps. And then move the mic around and make sure that you can find an interesting spot that sounds good. And again, the good sounding spot is not always the right spot. And we'll talk about that a little bit more for number one. But mic placement is so important, and it makes such a big difference. Um, this also encompasses phase correlation and cancellation, if you want to say it that way. Um, correlation meaning the sounds are very 
cohesive together and they're in phase. Cancellation meaning they're not in phase and they're starting to cancel out frequencies. Anything where you use multiple mics, um, you know, if you use two mics on an acoustic guitar, on a piano, or, you know, you use a close mic and a room mic, or you use, you know, eight mics on a drum kit, cancellation from phase problems will, will occur. It will occur. I'm not saying it might. I'm saying it will. And if you're not being aware of that, every time you record something, you are wrong. I'm sorry, but you are. So anytime you're using more than one mic on something, check the phase. Pop the little polarity button, and if it sounds better with the polarity button in, if it sounds like it has more low end, then keep it that way. If it sounds like it has less low end, and you know sounds really thin and phasey, then don't do that. If it doesn't seem to change at all, when you're flipping the polarity button and we're talking about, you know, let's say you have a, a kick in mic and a kick out mic. Okay. Or a acoustic guitar, close mic and an acoustic guitar room mic. When you check the phase, put them in mono, meaning both up the center or both in the left speaker or both in the right speaker and put them about the same level. That's so key. You can't hear the phase differences if they're at different levels. So put them at the same level in your speakers and flip the phase button if you flip the phase button on one of them and, you know, in a situation like that, in a close far situation, I will usually try to flip the far one. Uh, I don't usually flip the close mic. And like on a kick drum, I'll leave the inside mic and I'll use, I'll flip the outside mic. I don't really, I try to keep something as a reference point. So like on a drum kit, I never flip the phase of my kick in mic. It's always, that's my reference point for everything else. So I do that and then, you know. The kick out goes to that, and then I'll check that in the rooms and the overheads and blah, blah, blah. But if you flip the phase button and it doesn't seem to do anything, that means it's probably something like 90 degrees out of phase. When you flip the, the phase button or polarity invert button, um, it will flip the phase 180 degrees. If it doesn't seem to change at all, then it's time to move the microphone. That means it's probably 90 degrees out of phase, which means you need to move the mic. Um, there are a couple techniques with this. You can flip the phase button and move the mic around until it sounds the smallest and then flip the phase button back and it should sound the biggest there. So that technique is basically the idea of, you know, find the spot where the most cancellation is with the phase button flipped. And that should mean sometimes that's easier to hear than something that sound, you know, that's in phase. It's easier to hear something that sounds phasey and weird. Um, you know, and so th those are all big things and I could go on and on about this and I probably should do a show just about mic placement, but, um, it's so important to consider mic placement on every single thing you do. And if you're recording yourself, you know, be very cautious, try out, you know, do some shootouts of different placements from, you know, if you're recording your own acoustic guitar or something, do some shootouts with some different placements, you know, six inches away, 10 inches away, 20 inches away, three feet away, off to the left, off to the right, angled in, angled away from above the shoulder, behind the back. I mean, anything, try different mic placements and find interesting sounds. Um, I remember seeing this video one time of uh, one of my favorite producers recording acoustic guitars for a project. And he put a microphone like down on the floor like pointed up from like four feet away and it's like I bet that sounds really weird but in the track when you listen to the song it's like wow that sounds great 
And he said, I didn't have to use any EQ on this. So the point is, he put a mic in a weird spot because it had a certain tone. But that certain tone fit and cut through the mix perfectly. So that's the level of mic placement versatility that you can have. You can move the mic around to essentially EQ it before you even record it. So that's number two, folks, mic placement. And the moment you've been waiting for, number one thing that can increase the quality of your recordings and, you know, your engineering skills is vision. So I'm not talking about sight. I mean vision, like in your head, is planning, pre-production, all of that. You know, a couple of hours of planning and pre-production can save you three or four hours later. And that's so, so important. So before you start recording... You know, get out a piece of paper and start writing down things about the song that you know. So, okay, what instruments are going to be in the song? Uh, wh- where are they going to be placed? What what's the vi- what's the image that I'm getting from this song? Is it like guitars on the left and right, uh, drums in the back, and do I want the drums like up front, close to me? Do I want them far away? Do I want them? Do I want things to sound really dry? Do I want things to sound really wet? Do I want things to have a lot of effects? Do I want the vocals to sound really close or do I want them to sound more like in the room or do I want them to have a lot of effects? So plan out what you're going to do and you don't have to go crazy with it. You don't have to sit there and, and spend days upon days planning a song, but especially if you're working with clients, listen to the song before you record it, listen to it in lots of different ways in demo form and in person and listen to and play it in the room Think about the song. Think about the way that it's arranged. Think about the way that it's played. Think about who's playing what and with what amp and with what guitar. And just plan stuff out and be a production virtuoso, you know? Like, understand all of the elements that are about to happen. Understand that there are microphones and guitars and amps and cables and vocalists and there's going to be a mix and there's going to be preamps in there and EQs and compressors that are going to be in the control room while you're recording and think about all those factors and think about it as one big picture don't just think about it like okay let's do the drums and okay let's do the guitars like even if you're recording a song individual parts which I know a lot of people do listen to it as a whole like have the band go in and play it as a whole don't Just say, okay, we'll lay down a scratch track and then we'll do the drums. Like, listen to the song as a whole first and think about it. And, you know, don't get cocky. Don't think that you're some expert just because you try it and you're listening and, you know, making suggestions. It does take time and practice and it does take failure. You will probably make some suggestions on a song that will fail and sound worse in the end. But that's just something you have to deal with. So... Number one thing is planning and vision, and that is, it's free to do that. It just takes time, but I guarantee you, if you get good at it, if you get in the habit of doing it, if you start planning out your mixes, planning out your your engineering, uh, you know, sessions, and planning out your productions, then you can save so much time later and also learn so much about the project and create something that's very cohesive and sounds just good overall. So that is my top 10 things. Number 10, shortest cable links possible. Number nine, good stands and isolation mounts. Number eight, perfect tuning on guitars and drums. 
Number seven, using analog EQ and compression. Number six, trial and error. Number five, new strings and new heads. Number four, finding the best room that you can. Number three, using the best quality instruments and uh, amps that you can. Number two, mic placement. And number one, vision. Notice I didn't say anything about converters or plugins or, you know, mic preamps. And sure, mic preamps are important and converters are important, but they would probably be number 11, 12, or 13. They wouldn't be number 10. I would consider, you know, short cables to be, you know, short cables and, of course, high-quality cables. I mean, a short, cheap, dumpy cable is not going to do you any good, um, but short, high-quality cables is going to be, you know, more important than a preamp in the end, I think. Um, and that's just my opinion. So thank you for tuning in. Um, that was my top 10 list. Next time will be top 10 things that will in- that will boost the quality of your mixes. So stay tuned. Thank you guys for listening and email me with questions, comments, um, suggestions, recording lounge podcast at gmail.com. Check out the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash recording lounge. Also check out, uh, the blog recording lounge.blogspot.com. And I do freelance mixing and mastering for very reasonable rates, especially if you're a podcast listener. So email me, same email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com, and uh, I can give you a rate if that's something you're interested in. Thank you. I will talk to you soon.